Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to another episode of Without a Country. I am Corinne Fisher, your fearless leader, cohort. Is that the word I'm looking for? (laughs) I was just telling my mom this weekend, I was like, don't you love how I don't know words? She's an English teacher, so she doesn't. She doesn't. Um, Let's see. I guess maybe we're not cohorts. It depends if you have a shared. Well, no, we are. We all as a group. Wackos are cohorts because we all share the um, characteristic of being interested in critical thinking. There you go. Look at that. Look at that. Look at me. Uh, All right. It is January 30th. We're almost done with arguably the worst month of the year. Um, and I am excited for that because, I mean, I don't want to jinx it. We have a couple of days left, but, you know, relatively painless. Last year I was at the, I started the year with the AVNs, uh, but there was some other hiccups along the way. Uh, but now, uh, yeah, this January, there's been some fun stuff going on. It's good. Feeling good. Feeling great. Again, nothing really going well, but feeling good nonetheless, which I mean, is if that's not if that's not getting your mind on a good level when nothing in your life is going well yet you feel great I don't know what is I fucking I fucking figured it out guys um, all right so uh, what did I do this week I don't know a lot of a lot of oh a lot of dog stuff that's what I did a lot of dog stuff the past week has been a lot of dog stuff thank you everyone who came out to the funny for Fido nonprofit uh, comedy event last week. Uh, we, I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal the actual number. I, I just, uh, as you know, uh, was invited onto the board, so I don't want to start giving out company secrets, but my jaw dropped when I saw how much we raised for these rescue dogs. So thank you so much. Thank you to the cutting room, um, who lended their venue to us. Uh, thanks to everyone who came. There were so many amazing volunteers who were wackos and fuckers and, I really appreciate you being there. Uh, Didn't appreciate everyone trying to adopt my dog. I kept having to say, 
this is he's not up for adoption. He has a home. That's why he looks so cute and happy. Um, but your dog can one day look like my dog if you adopt a dog as well. So that's exciting. Um, uh, and Mike Harrington was there. He was uh, running the show. You did an excellent job. Are you happy with the work that you did at the Funny for Fido event, Mr. Harrington? Listen, the only thing I'm happy about is that the, a lot of those dogs found great homes. And, oh, uh, did they? Yeah. Okay. I, didn't, I wasn't updated. I mean, look. The dogs were too cute not to have. So I'm just, again, throwing it out there with no factual basis. Oh, again, I was I go, I go, how the hell do you have more information than me on the organization that I'm a part of? <laughs> you know, I just look, I'm I'm the optimistic one. So I'm telling you, if if even if not that night, those dogs found the home that night, if you know what I mean. I don't know what you mean, because there's this is not based in fact. No, I mean, look, there was a bunch of money that was raised to keep them out of, you know, kill shelters. They're going to be able to stay alive for longer. Eventually, uh, they will find the home because of the work that you did, Corinne Fisher. So. Well, you did work, too. Yeah. All right. Well, yay. Yay for us. It was, uh, it was a great event. And the dogs were so well behaved. There was like three barks the whole time. And it was from a dog who didn't have one eye. So I feel like I, I like it was kind of dim in that room. And I kind of like felt it for him because I'm like, he probably is barking because he can't like fully see in this light. Um, anyway, uh, again, thank you so much. That's great. I'm going to do a couple plugs up at the top. Uh, if you are watching this net on Wednesday on YouTube or listening to it on Wednesday on YouTube, tomorrow night, uh, Thursday, February 1st, Christina Hutchinson and myself are doing our first Guys We Fucked Live at the MasterCard Midnight Theater right here in New York City. That show is at 7 p.m. There are some tickets available to that. So make sure to grab them because I think we're going to take a small hiatus after that for our New York City run because we've been doing that for a bunch of months. And then, of course, Washington, D.C., myself and Chloe LeBranch are coming to you uh, to the D.C. Comedy Loft February 29th through March 2nd. And then Los Angeles, Valentine's Day. Yeah, I didn't go in date order, but whatever. Uh, Los Angeles, Valentine's Day. Um, the Comedy Store, that 8 p.m. show is basically sold out. There might be a couple tickets left if you'd prefer the earlier show. But we did just add on a second show, a 10.30 p.m. show in the main room at the Comedy Store on Valentine's Day. So if the reason you weren't coming was because you had dinner plans or some kind of plans earlier in the day, we do have that night show available for you now. Also, if you're just like making a trip to Los Angeles for the earlier show or fr from someplace further away um, and you're a super fan. I know everyone doesn't have the budget for this, but know that the two shows will be completely different. Like, cause we're not doing, it's the live experience show. So no two shows are the same. Like the format is going to be similar, but the shows will be completely different. So if you're a mega fan like me, um, that will like, like I am for other people, not for myself. Well, a little bit for myself. I uh, then buy a ticket to both shows and just make it a guys. We fucked night. Cause it's going to be so fun. We have not performed together at the comedy store in a long, long time. So we are excited for our return. And then as I've been kind of teasing on guys, we fucked, I have a lot of tour dates coming up. I'm doing a lot of, I'm kind of doing like a, a, a big, uh, list of like one nighters or two nighters in, um, some cities that I know there are a ton of people uh, waiting to see me in. Um, so I'm excited to go on that. Just was going back and forth with my agent before I got here today. So that's going to be released in the coming weeks. Some places that uh, you guys have been asking me to go for for a long time. But as you know, I had a lot, 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 lot of personal and family business to deal with over the past few years. So I just not have not been on the road because it's extremely tiring 
especially when you're going through shit and you need to be close to the fam. Um, all right, so I think that's all the business we need to cover. Uh, let's move on to the meat of the show. This is Enemy of the State. This week's Enemy of the State. And I feel like I've maybe said this before, but it's just been really nagging at me recently. Fa- I'm calling it fast fac- uh, fashion activism, okay? I've maybe made up another word for it in the past, but um, this week I'm calling it fast fashion activism. Enemy of the state. And what I mean by that are, okay, I'm not just saying this is only young people, but it's more, uh, I would say, prevalent in young people. Uh, so I, I love that a lot of young people are socially active. We, ha- I, I feel like people are socially active now, young people specifically, in a way that I've never seen during um, my lifetime. Probably hasn't happened since like the 60s or the 70s, right? And I love that. I absolutely love that. It's so exciting. But, and you know, because nothing's ever going to be perfect and there's always, you know, has to be like an overcorrection before something reaches uh, a happy medium. What I see are a lot of, especially young people, mindlessly following um, activism, a specific cause or trend uh, as if it's, you're just going along with whatever is popular, you know, as it's, as if it's as casual and harmless as bleaching the two front pieces of your hair, you know, Um, and I think that's really dangerous, right? And I just know, I see people going along with things or yelling about certain causes. And I'm like, I gotta be honest, I don't think you're really well-read on that. Not because of the view that you have, just because of the way that you're expressing it, right? Uh, People getting out there and protesting or wearing, you know, a shirt for something or updating your Instagram bio uh, saying you're for something. Like, it just changes so rapidly, right? So, you know, I mean, I think if we had looked, you know, last year around this time, we would see something about Roe v. Wade or, and then if we looked a year before that, we would have seen Black Lives Matter with a fist going like this. And now, obviously, you see uh, a Palestinian flag or an Israeli flag, and it just changes kind of the way that, you know, Facebook makes those little, um, templates to put over your your avatar picture if you're still on Facebook. Mine's mine's still hacked. We're still working on that. Um, but I, I, I just want to make sure I'm not saying which way to believe or I'm not pointing my finger and saying you definitely don't know what you're talking about. I'm just saying like make sure when you are participating in activism or speaking out about social injustice or a cause that you're doing it because it's something that you really feel is an injustice in your heart. And it's something that you're really committed to changing and using um, energy on whether or not it's the primary thing that your friends and the news are talking about. Even when this thing is not popular anymore, even when we move on as a society, as we so quickly do to another cause, you're still going to be committed to doing the work for this cause, right? That's what I'm talking about. And we talk about that concept a lot on this show, but I just think it's really the key to getting stuff done. Um, and that we don't just forget about things, you know, we don't just, you know, we're, we're, we're with climate change until Greta Thunberg gets too old for it to be cute. Then we move on to something else. Then we moved on to something else. It's like, what in your life are you committed to long-term? Like do, I think, think of your activism as a long-term relationship as you're standing on the altar and you're going to get married to this thing. And that also doesn't mean that if over time you learn new things about the cause you're working towards and maybe you don't believe that thing anymore. We've certainly seen um, uh, many people have viewpoints that they were really in favor of 
staunchly in agreement of, and then they learn more, or they do their own research, or they leave the group that they were perhaps born into or raised into, and they, you know, in quote, see the light or whatever, and they realize, oh, this thing that I have was thought was true my whole life, I don't believe that anymore. Sure, of course, you can switch your feelings. Um, but overall, like, just don't just hop on like the bandwagon of of the activism of the month. There's a lot of that. And it's really draining. And I do think it is. I mean, I don't want to say it's liberal specific, um, but that's just like the side that I'm hanging out on more. So I do think it is a huge problem with uh, progressives. And I'm sure conservatives have their own problem, just not as well read on that but um you know trying to get there trying to get there indeed uh i guess conservatives conservatives their issue is lack of morality and interest in uh money only (laughs) that would be my criticism of that um okay so that is my enemy of the state just like really like think about what why are you why are you sitting you know in this space protesting why are you marching with this group can you are, are you well read on it? Could you, if thrown into a debate, really make a, a point for the side that you're on? You know, we it's I just don't know that it's true. And I don't want to be like one of those disgruntled old man, men who, go, who are going up to women in like a Leonard Skinner T-shirt who are like, name five songs. But this is also a little bit more pressing than that. Um, all right. Moving on to the next thing. If you want to email me, it's without a country podcast at gmail.com. Again, I cannot reiterate enough. Please only send things to that email that are without a country specific. I literally will just delete the email if it's about anything else. Don't think of it as like an easy way to get to me um, for anything else that you might need. This is only for without a country stuff. Um, And so this question is from a wacko. And again, I've never really opened up the floor to questions specifically on this show, but I loved that this person wrote into me um, kind of for advice regarding politics, you know, the same way we do on Guys We Fucked. We do like a lot of sex dating relationship advice. Like, yeah, if you need political advice, this is not a segment I created on the show, but sometimes you guys write me and can create your own segments. And that's super cool. So this question is from a wacko. It says, do you have any thoughts on the dynamics of disagreeing with a friend on an ethical stand? In 99% of my life, I'm happy to, quote, agree to disagree when it comes to points of contention with friends and family. In this case, though, my best friend feels strongly about buying dogs from breeders. I can't find anything nice to say and find myself avoiding the topic and building resentment. I also find it interesting that your best friend feels strongly about uh, buying dogs from breeders. I've heard of people who are making a case for buying from breeders, but to feel strongly that you only should buy dogs from breeders is very interesting. Uh, Maybe the difference is that I have a high opinion of my friend and I'm disappointed in her participation in what I believe to be a selfish practice. Well, we're humans. We're all in one way or another participating in a selfish practice. Don't kid yourself, you know? Whereas with with family... I can meet them where they're at because my opinion of them has pretty much uh, because my opinion of them has pretty much nothing to do with what they think or believe. Ouch. So you have less respect for your family than for your friends. Well, that makes sense. Also, your family is just assigned to you. Your friends, you choose yourself. So if you have a low opinion of your friends, methinks you have a bit of a low opinion of yourself. So it's good that you don't. Um, I'm interested to hear how you've tackled ethical slash political disagreements in pure type relationships. I don't want to be a self-righteous bitch. How do you stay level-headed and thoughtful when the topic is close to your heart? 
I mean, I think that's a little bit uh, kind of like what this entire show is all about, right? Uh, you've heard me talk, uh, especially during the holiday times, about, uh, and this is v- liberal specific for sure, about people who are so proud and public about cutting off ties with their family because they have different political views from them. I think that is the one of the craziest things I've ever heard and absolutely not the right way to go about um, life. Uh, I understand cutting off ties with your family if they have been abusive to you or if they are you know, bullying you, but, you know, just the, these the, this notion that, you know, mom and dad voted for Trump, so I'm not coming to Christmas. I I don't know. Listen, write me in if you've done that and explain your your case to me. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear about that. Uh, and listen, I do have the luxury of um, sharing many, not all, certainly, but sharing many political views with my my mom and, and my late father. Uh, I would say I would say in some ways my my parents are like bigger, bigger liberals uh, than me. Uh, very like bleeding heart um, liberals in some ways. Um so, yeah, let let me know. I, I don't particularly agree with that. I think there's so much uh, polarization in society already. If we, you know, the conservatives love to talk about, you know, things like gay marriage, pulling apart the traditional family. Um, but where I do believe in like pulling apart families is if your parents voted for someone that you disagreed with, whether it be Trump or some other uh, Republican candidate, and then all of a sudden you're not calling them to wish them a happy birthday anymore. Like, I don't, I just don't feel like that's the answer. And I also, more importantly, if your goal is to have them change their opinion, I don't think you're going to get the results you want, right? So even if we're going from it from a rather uh, manipulative standpoint, if your goal is for them to change um not having their ch- their children stop talking to them is not going to make them ha- happier and it's not going to make them think positively about liberalism right so if your your goal you're thinking my my goal is to make them uh more open to liberal views well look back at what you did your liberal view just in their mind most likely pulled their family apart so that's going to make them i would think run even more towards conservative conservatism and towards uh, traditional family values, because look what liberalism just did to their family. Right. Like when you take a hard stance, you need to look at the results of what's going to happen. And I understand like it specifically, maybe if like you're a member of the LGBTQ community and even though your parents were uh, fine with you Uh, coming out of the closet. Uh, They are voting for a person who you feel does not have your best interests at heart. I hear that. Of course, I hear that. But like, you know, maybe in their mind, you're voting for someone who doesn't have their best interests at heart, heart, whether it be, be, you know, how they're treated when they retire or um, veterans or I don't know. There's just there's so many variables here. Um, So anyway, back to the, the question from the writer. I feel like Is there anyone that you're friends with who you share a hundred percent viewpoint with? I can't think of one friend who shares a hundred percent of my political or social opinions. Uh, I know I certainly get on some of my friends' nerves with my staunch feminism and my views on uh, that kind of thing. Even the way I approach money, I like. I think I love talking openly about money and women making money, and I know that rubs people some people the wrong way. That's fine. I constantly have to, when I'm scrolling through Instagram have to give myself my own pep talk where 
I see someone, you know, who's speaking about something that I really disagree with, that I just think is a real nasty, bad part of society. And they're on that side. And I have to think like, am I, is it time to unfollow this person? And if it's the first time that they've expressed an opinion that really makes my skin crawl, I don't. If they are someone who is consistently uh, sharing stuff that is hateful without a good argument or a well thought out argument, I think that's when I go for the unfollow because they're just not putting in the work. But there are plenty of people who consistently share opinions that I don't believe in. I don't agree with, but at least they're making a case for themselves. And so I will continue to follow those people. I think it's particularly upsetting when it's someone that you have on a pedestal, like like your best friend. But that's our fault for as humans um, expecting uh, more than human uh, behavior from the humans that we fraternize with. Like, you know, I, I think I have that problem a lot. We have a, that problem a lot with teachers, with parents. We see them as perfect for so long and then we grow up and we come into our own points of view and we realize that they are flawed humans like we are. And, but the, the issue is we tend to fail to give them the grace to be humans that make mistakes and have flaws. Uh, when most likely the reason that we gravitated towards these individuals in the first place is because they gave us the grace that we so needed when we made those mistakes, right? And a lot of these concepts, I mean, sure, I've learned a lot of that uh, from doing this show. I've also learned a lot of this from uh, When Things Fall Apart uh, by Pema Chodron that I talk about nonstop just because I think it was, you know, a book that really helped alter uh, my perspective on some things that had been ingrained in me for a long time. And one of those things um, that can be applied to politics specifically is this concept of good, right? This concept of good and, quote, doing the right thing. Uh, again, I could really I could really apply this to Taylor Swift's entire career. And I think it's a really could be a really interesting essay if anyone's in college right now and wants to write a thesis on that. Um, and compare those two, idea alert. I think that is, I, I would love to just sit down and do that just for fun. Um, but yeah, I think this notion of, and again, this is this is liberal specific, but I think in politics, very few people are setting out with viewpoints where they think they have the wrong viewpoint. Like the reason people are so passionate about politics is because they do think they are fighting for the greater good. They do think they are on the right side of history. They do think they are saving children or helping women or helping society progress or getting back to, quote, making America great again. I think they really believe those things. And that's why to say like, I am on the right side of history so confidently, I find it to be quite laughable, right? Um, and so this concept of good, uh, and that's something that I definitely grew up a lot, like this, you know, being raised to be a good person. But then I, you know, in the past couple of years, I've been really thinking like, what does that even mean? And why do I have this want to be good? And do I want to be good so people see me as good? Do I want to be good because in my heart I really feel like it's the right thing? Um, and so, and Pema talks about how like how often this like quest for good is really a, a self-serving quest. You know, we want to do the right thing so people can look over there and say, "Hey, that's Corinne. She does the right thing. We like her. She is a good person. She's a good girl." You know, Ugh, I hate that. I, good girl anywhere except for in the bedroom makes my since shivers down my spine. It's so disgusting. Um, or a dog, I guess it's fine to say too. But yeah, so um, that I, I think really 
um, think about self first, as I always uh, recommend. And why are you so bothered by your friend's viewpoint? Um, are you, it, does it bother you that someone you've placed on a pedestal, you now feel like you are, you know, in quotes, gooder than her? Does that bother you because the power dynamic has changed? Like, what is it about it? Is it, does it make you question things about yourself and your ability to choose friends or surround yourself with good people? Because um, I don't think that makes her a bad person. I don't agree with her choice. I think it's uh, quite frankly an un, um, like a rather uninformed opinion, but I, again, there's like all my friends have like one big thing that I disagree with them on. And in life, like what's more important, like having relationships or having the right political viewpoint? I mean, I think it's like having relationships. That's where it starts. That build that builds the foundation of any society, having people that you surround yourself with. So I just think like be really careful, anyone listening about this quest to be good. And when you're, you know, yelling at some person that you've never met online, like, why haven't you talked about this? Or why haven't you talked about this? Or why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you covering this? It's like, what do you, what do you, number one, what the fuck are you doing to help? And uh, because it's so easy to push push the problem onto somebody else. Well, you have a bigger platform. You have more money. You have a larger reach. Yeah, I mean, I work to get here. So you can work to get to a place where you have a larger reach too. Again, maybe maybe make it around this platform that you're so uh, into me covering for you. I just think it's like we want the work done, but we don't necessarily want to do it ourselves. And uh, yeah, really, really look into what it means, what goodness means to you and why you're so hung up on having the, the correct ethical stance because that's something I've analyzed a lot in in myself to get to a good place with that because uh, I was kind of at a point just so disgusted with this like right side of history liberal bullshit because uh, I, I go why why do you want to be good I don't actually think you're really any more good than conservatives to be honest I think we're kind of all flawed assholes of humans um, so I hope that helped in some way I know that went um that went many ways. I could talk about this shit for hours. Hey there, responsible wackos over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. Do you want to get high? Do you want to get really high? Do you want to get really super duper legally high still in 2024? Oh no. Well, then now's the time to go to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested Delta 8. You guys know this is one of our uh, favorite sponsors here at Without a Country. We've been working with them for a long time. Everyone likes to use this product to disassociate. So why don't you join the gang you know if everyone jumped off a ledge wouldn't you is that the saying I don't really remember it it's something like that uh, but anyway if you want to disassociate which is a popular pastime for both January and February do that definitely uh, whatever you need to keep your keep your brain working to the best of its ability keep yourself happy get out of that those winter blues if you live in a cold climate so if you're over the age of 21 <clears throat> and living in the majority of states where this is legal, you're going to go over to YoDelta.com and stock up on Delta 8. What's Delta 8? Well, unsure, you know, jury's out, but it's found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states and get you high. At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stone needs. I can tell you that Delta 8 works. But I can tell you anything, so why don't you use it for yourself? Of course, these products should be taken responsibly. Once more, that's YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gas Digital Network. And if you use promo code GAS, G-A-S, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, that's promo code GAS, G-A-S, for 25% off. Yo Delta, home of the Delta 8 that will get you super high. Now, back to Without a Country.
All right, moving on to uh, Corinne Fisher's uh, party topic of the week. It's my party. Wow. I love that. Leslie Gore for everybody. Um, Okay. So there is a lot of death penalty uh, stories circulating this week, which is great. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about because uh, if you remember, I am vehemently against uh, the death penalty. Always have been. Mm, That was certainly something, a a viewpoint that was, uh, I, I grew up with and one of the viewpoints that I, I still absolutely agree with, um, as far as my, uh, parenting was concerned. So this article is from MSNBC. Uh, there was no good way for Alabama to execute Kenneth Eugene Smith. And this is the person who, uh, they attempted to execute him, Uh, And the initial way that they used to execute him didn't work. So then they had to use another method of execution. Pretty heinous on top of, to me, what is already an inhumane practice. Um, Again, there are so many people who are really into the death penalty. I just, I I can have never been able to wrap my mind around it. This is an opinion piece. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor said Alabama chose to make the the condemned man its guinea pig. Uh, And this man has already been executed. He was executed on, I believe, January 25th. Um, But it was a story I was following for a little bit. You might have heard about it yourself. The outrage over Alabama using the previously untested method of nitrogen gas Um, to execute 58-year-old Kenneth Eugene Smith on Thursday night isn't misplaced. The use of any human being as a guinea pig, and I mean, again, if you want to really get into levels on it, the fact that we're even using guinea pig as if it would be okay to torture the animal a guinea pig in this way, I also have a real uh, problem with. Um, And this actually reminds me in layers a lot about the conversation that I had with uh, Dr. Crystal Heath a couple uh, weeks ago and the avian flu and how we kill large flocks of birds when they uh, come down with the avian flu. It really reminded me of that and how just so many living things on this planet are suffering. We're not really thinking about it. We're not really talking about it. And then we wonder why the energy on the planet and in our country is in a bad place. If you don't think uh, torturously slaughtering living things is is like leaking into the higher energy of who we are and what we do and the decisions we make. I gotta be honest. I don't. I don't think you're thinking deep enough about it. Okay. Um, so uh, the use of any human being as a quote guinea pig for a method of execution, in the words of Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, makes the blood boil. But there's a chance that the focus on Smith, whom Alabama tried and failed to kill in 2022, will distract attention from the much larger outrage that our country is still put it, pulling human beings from cages and killing them. Not killing them because they're threatening someone else, not killing them in the interest of public safety, but killing them based on the flimsy idea that executions foster closure for victims' families and deter future crimes. Uh, Killing them to avoid being attacked as soft on crime. 
uh, killing them in the service of a vengeance that can never be satisfied. That's a great line. Uh, especially not, as was the case Thursday, when this punishment for Elizabeth Senate's murderer came more than 35 years after his crime. The record shows that Senate's husband, the Reverend Charles Senate, hired three men in 1988 to kill his wife so that he could collect her insurance money. Hmm, that's nice for a reverend. A jury found that Smith, then 22, was one of the three who stabbed and beat her to death. Senate's husband killed himself shortly th thereafter. And that's the way you handle that. Just kill yourself, okay? I mean, if you if you hire someone to kill your wife, don't don't just kill yourself because you're having a bad day. Uh, many arguments against the death penalty focus on doubts about the condemned person's guilt. Statistics also show that who gets executed is heavily influenced by the victim's race and how poor the defendant is. What a surprise. More recently, we've seen more arguments focus on the likelihood that past executions haven't been painless and that many have been botched. For example, Alabama officials poked around Smith's outstretched body in November 2022, but couldn't find a vein in which to inject the poison. And that's why he wasn't killed by lethal injection. Yes, we can be almost certain that innocent people have been and will be executed. Uh, yes, the statistics about which people get executed and for whose murders contradict all our country's platitudes about equal protection under the law. And yes, the drawn out executions that have occurred during the last decade do appear to be cruel, if not unusual punishment. But questioning the accuracy of convictions and decrying the uneven application of the penalty or the occasional inability of the states to kill efficiently may make some people think we need execution reform when what we really need is to get rid of executions altogether. To put it plainly, the state ought not to be in the business of killing killing people. And I mean, you know, we're as a as a government, uh, it, as long as we have a military, we will always, quote, be in the business of killing people. But I think um, this author, when they talk about being in the business of killing people, I think uh, killing individual people, you know, as decided by a judge or, you know, jury and jury of their uh, of their peers is um, it's not it's not no way to run a progressive society. Uh, but it keeps looking to do so. The Justice Department, for example, has announced its intent to seek the death penalty for Peyton Gendron, a 20-year-old white man who stands accused of murdering Roberta Drury, Pearl Young, Hayward Patterson, Ruth Whitfield, Celestine Cheney, Aaron Salter Jr., Andre McNeil, Margus Morrison, Catherine Massey, and Geraldine Talley, all of them black at Topps Friendly uh, Markets in Buffalo in May 2022. Though Gendron's awful crime is emblematic of a spirit of hatred and fear that's sweeping the country, he shouldn't be executed either. Pulling him out of a cage and putting him to death won't accomplish anything more than Alabama's uh, ending of Smith's life Thursday night. As NBC News has reported, while some relatives of victims are okay with the DOJ's plan, some aren't. Michelle Fryson, who had two relatives murdered, called the GOJ's decision to pursue death for Gendron a gut blow. Never did I wish that he would have the death penalty, she said. Fryson doesn't seem to think closure is a possibility. And I think that's the hard part, she continued. When something like this magnitude, massacre of this magnitude occurs, everybody wants to be able to bring some closure, if you will, and it is not in sight. 
Because Alabama was using an execution method that had not been tried before, the debate before Smith's execution centered on how much pain, if any, he'd feel. In September, Alabama State Senator Trip Pittman, Republican Montrose, who sponsored the legislation allowing nitrogen to be used to kill the condemned, told the Alabama reflector, you basically black out. He said there is no time for pain or anything else. In fact, nitrous oxide is a way of reducing pain for reducing surgeries. However, the reflector noted that the American Veterinary Medical Association, our old pals, discourages nitrogen being used to euthanize animals because any oxygen that gets mixed into the nitrogen the animal is forced to breathe uh, will prolong death. According to a reporter from the Montgomery Advertiser who witnessed Smith's killing, he, quote, appeared to convulse and shake vigorously for about four minutes, which, as a stand-up comedian, I know how long four minutes can be when you're bombing, so I can only imagine how long four minutes can be when you're dying, uh, after the nitrogen gas apparently began flowing. According to that report, it was another two to three minutes before he appeared to lose consciousness, all while gasping for air to the extent that the gurney shook several times. And, you know, I I know you're sitting here thinking like, well, he, you know, he took the life of another person. I mean, I mean, that's a very eye for eye mentality. But on top of that, um, as we've talked about on the show before, think about there is there is another human being who has to administer this gas and think of even if you don't care about the actual person being killed, think about the uh, mental repercussions for the person who is who, who is being paid fucking minimum wage, you know, to administer this and what they're going to have to go through and what that person is going to have to go through for the rest of their life having seen this, you know? And this is like a fucking young person who took money, who was who having rough time financially and took money to kill someone they don't know. Not that that makes it okay. It's still obviously horrendous. But like, to me, this, this, this is, it's just not, it's not on the same level. This out of all the people that we quote should be killing um, by execution, this, uh, this definitely ain't the guy. Uh, it might be tempting to use that eyewitness uh, account to challenge the lawmaker who suggested that the death would be quick and painless. But even if that argument were to move him, he'd likely just look for a quicker, more painless way. The real rebuttal is this. Even if Smith died feeling as if he were floating on a cloud, the state cutting um, short his life was barbaric. Uh, and again, I, I, I just feel like, yeah, uh, humans deciding um, to take other humans' lives. It's just not like a society that it's not a part. I don't want that to be a society, part of society that I live in. I don't think it's appropriate in, in, in any way. Again, we've kind of gone through this before um, many moons ago and people emailed me their thoughts. This is one that I've read a lot about. I don't think my opinion on this will ever change. Um, again, I've, I have explicit, um, instructions from family members to that if they were ever murdered. And again, these are the lighthearted party conversations that I have, um, growing up in my house and you can have the same at a party. Um, if, you know, we can maybe do a poll this week, if you were murdered, would you want the person who killed you to receive, um, the death penalty for me? No, give them a fucking, give them a podcast weekly. I want to hear why they did it. Right. May my spirit live on. Um, okay, so now we move on to girl. Mm, A little Nikki Haley update. Obviously, we were tracking her performance in New Hampshire uh, last week. And that didn't do we have the stats on how she actually ultimately pulled in that Michael? I mean, it didn't, you know, didn't she didn't win. But 
Trump won. It was fairly close, though. Right. Um, she didn't get destroyed. No, no, no. It was 54% Trump, 43% Nikki Haley. So super good showing. Yeah, Ron DeSantis pulling in at 0.7 and Chris Christie, uh, 0.5. Okay. Wow. Um, and so this is just a little piece from the Daily Beast because I kind of looked up ha- ha- seeing that she lost New Hampshire. Like, is she still in the running? Uh, apparently, she has not dropped out yet. Daily Beast has a piece that says Nikki Haley just got swatted again report. And I found that it was interesting that such a left leaning uh, media source like the Daily Beast was even caring about Nikki Haley's safety. To me, that was a step in the right direction, at least. Um, so it said Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley was reportedly targeted in a swatting incident earlier this month, just days after another person summoned police to her home under the guise of an emergency. The second swatting attempt on the former South Carolina governor's home in Kiowa Island occurred on January 1st, according to a sheriff's office incident report obtained by Reuters. The 911 caller claimed that Haley had shot her daughter and was threatening to hurt herself. A deputy responded to the home and after speaking to an unidentified woman at the front door who matched Haley's description, concluded the caller's report had been bogus. Haley's campaign did not immediately respond to a request for comment by Reuters. The report comes two days after The Wire reported the first swatting incident, which took place on December 30th. In that call, a man told dispatchers he'd shot a woman at Haley's home and would hurt himself next. Haley later told NBC's Meet the Press that while she had not been home at the time, Her parents uh, had been approached by officers with their, quote, uh, guns drawn. And so if you're not familiar with swatting, it's interesting because this was um – a bit of a pattern for a while uh, in the game of uh, in the world of online gaming. I watched um, some pretty like long piece and read some pretty long articles about it, uh, where uh, you know gamers would co- would uh, have other gamers swatted, and it and again it's where you report a really serious crime, like the person has a bomb or the person has is you know has killed their old family, and so your entire um, house or location that you're in is surrounded by a SWAT team, which is really scary and um and i can only imagine like really dangerous especially um for people of color can you imagine if nikki haley was a black woman you know can you can you can you imagine how much worse and worse and worse this could get with swat teams at calling someone and how just you know so I, i'm i'm assuming it's it's democrats or liberals doing this people who don't want Nikki Haley or I guess it could be Trump supporters I don't really fucking know but just what the fuck has to go through your mind that you think is it is appropriate um to have someone's house that you don't agree with politically swatted you know and it's also I don't want to like put this out of there but but it's also like uh if you're gonna if you want okay if you want to have a uh, if you want someone to get a book written about them to borrow from Shane Smith's language if you want someone to get a book written about them wink wink write a book about them yourself don't make someone else write a book about them I think that's the key here so this is not only disgusting behavior you're 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 putting the onus and you're putting it on somebody else you're making someone else fucking do your dirty work that's so fucking shitty it's so shitty it's such beta fucking behavior okay it's beta behavior is that what you want you want someone else to you want someone else to write a book about the person that you don't want to be president yuck yuck you're a little baby um but i was i was actually proud of the daily beast um for sharing this information because i think that's important to know just like no matter what we think about nikki haley her her house shouldn't be getting swatted that's disgusting 
Um, all right, moving on. This is an interesting article. I only saw it on The Hill, which uh, is a Republican, uh, but sane Republican news source. Uh, it says Taylor Swift conspiracy theories engulf conservative social media. Uh, yeah. So conservative social media is engulfed with a Taylor Swift conspiracy theory centered on the idea that the NFL is rigging games to ensure the pop superstar and boyfriend's team both make and win the Super Bowl just in time to give a nod to President Biden in the presidential election. I think this is a bit far fetched, but here we go. Swift. Coming off a year in which her The Eras Tour broke records, her constant movie boosted the box office and her romance with Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey broke the internet is perhaps at the peak of her popularity and fame. Perhaps. I mean, definitely. That's, I guess she could get more famous is maybe what they're, the point they're making. Uh, that's attracted attention from the political world with the Biden campaign said to be interested in a dream endorsement from Swift, according to an article published Monday. Day by the New York Times. But we already and I just want to point out we already saw the the power of a Taylor Swift endorsement, right? Um uh in uh, a topic that's covered in the Netflix documentary Miss Americana where she was specifically getting people to register to vote in Tennessee, right? Um I think Taylor has the power to make people uh vote. I don't know that she has the power that we saw to make people uh, vote for someone that they were not politically aligned with in the first place. And in fact, I think that's the one area where she could see a drop off in fan base because, um, you know, Taylor Swift is strong. I don't know that she's stronger than uh, politics, although this week Donald Trump also did claim that he's more popular than Taylor Swift. And I go, oh, no, Donald Trump doesn't know the definition of popular because popular means specifically you are known, but also liked. I was like, Donald Trump. I don't even think you're more well known than Taylor Swift, but I was like, at least you're like, you know, you're you're very well known. Popular, though, Taylor Swift is crushing you. She's crushing you as far as the the business in the business of being liked. Taylor Swift, you know, she cares a lot about that and she's done a lot of work at it. And Donald Trump, you don't care about being liked. It seems that's that's what you've told people. And that's, you know, one of the few things I respect about you, to be honest. And it's one of the things I don't respect about Taylor Swift, her endless need to be liked. It's sad. It's pathetic. Who cares? Um, all right. So uh, Swift endorsed Biden in 2020. I didn't even fucking remember that. Did you guys remember that endorsement? I don't even remember that endorsement. That was such a that was just not an interesting election. Uh, Swift endorsed Biden in 2020 and has been somewhat active in politics, also endorsing Democrat Phil Bredesen against Republican Marsha Blackburn. And that's that's the one that's covered in uh, uh, Miss Americana, but Marsha Blackburn still takes it when the latter was first elected to the Senate in 2018. Uh, specifically, uh, she was really angry at Marsha Blackburn because, uh, if you recall from the documentary, Marsha Blackburn was, was like undoing a lot of laws that were in place, um, to help women, including uh, a law about stalking. And obviously, Taylor Swift has a pretty serious stalker, uh, at least at her New York City apartment, who has like slept in her bed and shit. And so that's something that she, of course, and any famous person, I would think, feels uh, very passionately about. Swift's incredible popularity is also bringing to the forefront front various ugly sides of 21st century American life, from explicit AI-generated deepfakes of the superstar that 
briefly closed down Taylor Swift's searches this week on X, aka Twitter, to unfounded conspiracy theories. Kansas City has been to three Super Bowls in five years and one Sunday in a game that featured terribly timed turnovers and careless penalties by the losing Baltimore Ravens. While Kansas City was the underdog, the victory was hardly a big surprise. But that seems to matter little with those fanning the conspiracy on the right. I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month. Former GOP presidential candidate uh, Vivek Ramaswamy wrote the morning after Chiefs victory. And I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially culturally propped up couple this fall. Just some wild speculation over here. Let's see how it ages over the next eight months, said Ramaswamy. No stranger to conspiracy theories. Can you look up if Travis Kelsey has endorsed Biden in 2020? Because I just don't think someone, especially a professional athlete, especially in the sport of football, um, I, I don't think that he would come forward with a Biden um endorsement that seems really counterproductive to his career specifically he took a pfizer endorsement that is akin to taking a biden endorsement Nah, there was enough people that did that did uh endorsements for like covid and stuff that wasn't completely like that's not so outwardly political i know i know it's edging but i don't know i just feel like travis kelsey wouldn't do that unless taylor makes him do it then he'll do it I'm looking up whether uh, whether or not he um, he's ever endorsed Biden. I'll let you know. Or any, or I guess made any political endorsement. Uh, Elon Musk, the owner of X, later retweeted another post on the subject from Ramaswamy with the message exactly. I mean, Elon Musk posts the dumbest things on X. I don't even pay attention to him anymore. I thought I previously thought maybe he had some good things to say or was slightly intelligent. And I mean, obviously he knows. He knows in some ways how to get to the top of things, but overall, just, you know, I don't really think that he's that intelligent. Jack Lombardi, a conservative activist who ran an unsuccessful bid for the House in 2022, also posted on social media, he has never been more convinced that the Super Bowl is rigged. I mean, guys, I'm not like, like this. This kind of goes back to like when we were saying that. You know, people were saying that the presidential election was rigged and then Donald Trump won and Hillary, who was supposedly uh, rigged in favor of, lost. So, like, I just don't think these things are rigged. The Democrats' Taylor Swift election interference uh, psyop is happening in the open, claimed far-right influencer Laura Loomer. It's not a coincidence that current and former Biden admin officials are propping up Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. They are going to use Taylor Swift as the poster child for their pro-abortion get out the vote campaign. No one's pro-abortion. They're pro-choice. Stop mincing words. It's so irritating. The NFL is totally rigged for the Kansas City Chiefs. Taylor Swift, Mr. Pfizer, who that's what they're calling Travis Kelsey, as Mike just chimed in on. Mike Crispy, a Rumble video host set on X, all to spread Democrat propaganda, all caps. Calling it now, Casey wins, goes to Super Bowl. Swift comes out at the halftime show and endorses Joe Biden with uh, Kelsey at midfield. That's not happening. That's not happening. I actually do think Kansas City is going to win the Super Bowl, but I don't think they're coming out at the halftime show midfield and endorsing a presidential. I mean, we would have January 6th all over again. Like, that's just not happening. The Swift conspiracy theories predate Sunday's big game. 
Fox News host Jesse Waters in January said the Pentagon's Psychological Operations Unit had floated the idea of turning Taylor Swift into an asset. And I, I don't doubt this part. It's real. The Pentagon PSYOP unit pitched NATO on turning Taylor Swift into an asset for combating misinformation online, Waters said at the time. His evidence was a clip from a NATO cyber conference where a presenter appeared to name Swift as an example of a powerful influencer, according to a report by police. Political, Politico. And, but the thing is, this article is acting as if it's not as if it's a new concept for presidential candidates to use celebrities to help them get into the White House or get into a specific seat or chair or position. And it's not. It's not new at all. It's been going on forever. Uh, at the time, Pentagon spokesperson Sabrina Singh told Politico, uh, as for this conspiracy theory, we are going to shake it off. Jesus Christ, that's almost as bad as Pokemon go to the polls. Perhaps the conspiracy theories in part reflect a certain fear about Swift's influence and power, which has certainly grown since the last presidential election. A Redfield and Wilton Strategies Newsweek poll released Sunday found that 18% of 1,500 respondents said they're more likely or significantly more likely to vote for a candidate Swift in Endorses. First of all, that's 1,500 is a very small um, piece of uh, people, of persons to uh, do a poll with. And second, secondly, I think what is more troublesome is that these people are allowed to vote, people who would be that highly influenced by Taylor Swift. That's wild. I, and also, where was this poll taken? In the parking lot at a Taylor Swift Eras Tour concert? The reality is that's persuadable power, Fox host Emily Campagno said Monday of Swift's massive social media following. And this administration is locked dead set on harnessing that. Swift has yet to state her support for any candidate in the 2024 cycle, though given the 2022 endorsement, a nod to likely GOP nominee former President Trump seems unlikely. After her endorsement in 2020, Biden tweeted his thanks for what he referred to as Swift speaking out at this crucial moment in our nation's history. Uh, Biden, and I also think it's a little bit less polarizing when the person that the president is running against is someone like Donald Trump. Um, I think for her to give a Biden endorsement when he's running against Trump is kind of like not that big of a deal. Whereas if it was a little bit more level-headed Republican candidate, I think that would um, speak volumes. Because to me, now there are three parties in the, Amer in the American political system. There's Democrats, there's Republicans, and then there's MAGA Republicans. And I think many people agree with that. Like the division is strong within the Republican Party, uh, which is nice. I mean, the liberals so often um, eat ourselves. It's nice to watch the Republicans do it a little bit. Um, Biden is considerably less popular now, and there could be real questions about whether Swift would want to even get drawn into this year's race. Brian Kil Kilmeade, another leading host on Fox, called a potential endorsement of Biden from Swift the single dumbest thing a mega superstar could ever do. And I think her father would agree if you watched Miss Americana. Why would you tell half the country that you don't agree with them in this highly polarized time? He said, you stay out of it. It would be the craziest thing you could ever do. And Biden isn't worth it. Okay, well, I, I think I think if you know Taylor, the worst uh, thing to do is to threaten her in that manner, because then she's definitely going to be more interested in giving an endorsement to Biden. Um, I, uh, but again, I think like endorsing Biden when he, she's he's running against Trump is kind of like it's not as big of a deal politically for Taylor as other races would have been in the past.
Uh, Mike, did you come up with anything regarding Travis Kelsey? Uh, no, the only thing I'm seeing, like, uh, he, he did speak out, um, you know, as a, during 2020, um, you know, with a very, very pro-social change, um, which is, you know, again, a, a indicator, but no a hard stance political. Uh, um, okay. It's not, yeah, it's not super. I mean, there's there's a couple athletes who speak out, but overall it's not like as common uh, among athletes as it is among musicians and actors they tend to be a little bit more political but they do they, he did do like uh, one of those like vote things you know what i mean yeah but but just getting like registering to vote yeah, is getting out for the vote mm -hmm. i mean that's the kind of thing i do like actually it's interesting because uh like on guys we fucked when we have to approve like basically every ad that runs on that show um Whereas here, I just let anything fly. But um, on, uh, yeah, I don't really have a choice here. But um, on Guys We Fucked, we, we have enough power there that we can say yes or no to anything that goes on um, our show. And there's a couple things that have snuck in now that iHeart is uh, our umbrella boss. But uh, as far as endorsing specific political candidates, we kind of try to, to stay away from that across the board just because I, I, that's not like the business I'm in. I think it's still like kind of yucky um whereas i think getting you know endorsing that you should as an american be registered to vote that's just, that goes without saying yes of course you should be even if you then choose to not vote which again i personally disagree with that but i think you should at least be registered give yourself the option you know um all right moving on i thought this was thematically a good shift uh there's this uh witches article that's been really um interesting me and i wanted to share uh from lithub.com uh, how witches shifted from daily healers to heretics and dangerous women under Christian rule. Uh, Marion Gibson um, on why public perceptions of witchcraft changed in the 15th century. This is a little bit more of a historical element, but I think, you know, why not share pieces like this on the show as well, uh, especially when so many women are still, you know, in their own way being uh, sen sentenced to death as witches. What is a witch? To answer that question, we have to start with another. What is magic, the force witches use? That answer depends on time and place. In early history, magic was considered to be a power innate in healers, shamans, and religious leaders across multiple cultures. It allowed them to go beyond natural abilities to change the world in inexplicable ways. Communities would have several such magical workers combining medical and priestly roles. There was no clear line between their magical healing and harming, since good and bad magic were two aspects of the same force. On Monday, a user of magic might bless you. On Thursday, they might curse you. That was just how things were. If you felt a magically gifted person was using that force to do harm, you might vilify them as a witch, a user of evil magic, and you might hold a local trial and mandate repentance. You might banish or kill the witch if their crimes were unacceptable. But witchcraft accusations would not spread widely, and on the whole, you would not begin to believe all magic was evil. Some societies were concerned about this possibility. The ancient Greeks and Romans feared magic was inherently ungodly but most retained a blurry notion that magic could be a force for good. 
This changed in Europe during the medieval period with a new theological science was when a new theological science was established. The studies of devils or demons appropriately called demonology. By the 1400s, the Christian clergymen who developed demonology had convincingly claimed a unique insight into the workings of the cosmos and God's will. Now, demonologists argued witchcraft was not just good magic gone bad. It was envisioned as a career committed to wickedness, setting itself against the church. Hmm, how interesting. A group of clergy men. Um... The imaginative world of the 15th to 18th centuries was crammed with curses and blessings, angels, devils, ghosts, spirits that could invade bodies, fairies, elves, and ruling uh, over it all, a benevolent God. Demonologists did not perceive the Christian God's supernatural ability as part of that wider magical universe, however. Their deity's powers and the miracle working of his priests were not classed as magic. Instead, they were thought of as springing from religious truth, a special class of power reserved for Christian clergymen. Therefore, all the other supernatural powers swirling about in the world must be lesser and they came to be seen as evil witchcraft. The either-or thinking that shaped demonology developed partly because the Christian church was splitting internally. And like, think about how this also can be applied to um, uh, either-or thinking in politics. Uh, What began as a series of arguments over church doctrine soon escalated into violence, part of a culture war called, with bland understatement, the Reformation. Uh, The Reformation's disagreements uh, forced people to choose between Catholic, traditional, and Protestant reformed sects. This religious conflict began with good intentions uh, when pious Catholics challenged their church's leaders to be better Christians. The Pope, cardinals, and bishops were no longer humble preachers, reformers argued, but palace-dwelling oligarchs condoning the sins of rich donors. Mystics, like St. Catherine of Siena, scholars like Jan Hus and translators like John Wycliffe began to claim alternative sources of Christian wisdom, visions from God, reinterpretations of ancient texts. Some reformers were embraced by the church, but others were cast out. In the 16th century, hundreds of thousands left the main body of the church to form their own sect, Protestantism. Uh, Protestantism. You you know... (laughs) I'm like, I can't pronounce this. We know what this is, though. Um, As uh, hatred between the two sides grew, it became permissible to kill fellow Christians now branded as demonic opponents, something that Christians had been inflicting upon Jews and Muslims for many centuries, but had now turned on each other. Uh, One, Catholics and Protestants came to regard each other as heretics, misbelievers, haters of the truth church, and therefore in binary thinking, Satan's people. The punishment for hearsay Uh, was to be burned alive. In such a violently divided culture, suspicion bred suspicion, leaders of both sects soon began to investigate whether Satan had other agents within their congregations. Before the 15th century, most churchmen regarded the healers and diviners in their communities as ineffective fantasists, mild sinners trafficking in charms and curses who couldn't do much harm. But as Reformation either or logic sank in, The fear grew that these magical practitioners had an evil source of power, Satan. If the force they used 
wasn't obviously Christian, it must be evil. That would make them witches, and it was a short step from burning heretics to burning witches. Although not identical, both were enemies of God. The magic deployed by the career witch was simply a maximally dangerous type of hearsay. Uh, who were the people accused of witchcraft? Well, most witches were thought to be female. What a surprise. Although healers and shamans could be of either sex, as magic became associated with evil, so it also moved toward association with women. Christian priests were all male. While many churchmen were good Christians, true to their gospel of love, others were obsessed with the regulation of women, their sexuality, conduct, and thought. And again, think of how these same concepts bleed so heavily into the politics we see today, even though the very point of America was to have a place where anyone could, um, outside of politics, practice whatever religion they felt suited them, how so often we see these same themes, this same regulation of women, um, these Christian concepts seeping into our politics, even though there is supposed to be this separation of church and state. There were female saints in Catholic theology and Christ's mother Mary but was a venerated figure. Such female role models were deemed acceptable, but clergymen brooded over Eve, the first woman. Eve had lived peaceably with her husband Adam until she succumbed to Satan's temptation to eat a fruit symbolizing knowledge. She fell into sin, persuaded Adam to join her, and contemned their descendants to damnation unless they led repentant lives." Churchmen educated on the Eve myth, often celibate as part of their religious commitment, therefore tended to distrust women as dangerous rebels, rather like heretics. Women's minds were clearly easily confused by demonic lies, and what was worse, their tongues then talked men into sin, these churchmen wrote. If a demonologist was looking for Satan's people, it was logical he would start with women. Just as Eve had been corrupted by Satan, so 15th century women were also seen as open to his suggestions. These were not just mental temptations, but were imagined as physical appearances by the devil offering practical help. By the 1480s, demonologists thought if a woman was poor, Satan could appear offering money or goods and actually enrich her. If she resented obeying men, he could free her. If she wanted companionship, the devil could visit as a lover or a pet. If she wanted revenge, he could crush her enemies. Satan might appear in human or animal form as a familiar, a supposedly friendly spirit, but if he offered you his services, his fee would be your soul, your link to God, and your hope of a place in heaven. Once you accepted this pack, donating your soul in exchange for assistance, Satan would mark you with a blemish or growth, showing you belong to him, and then he would lend you the power you'd wanted, and you would become a witch. A witch could make her enemy, and this also just like with a basic knowledge of Wicca, you would you would know that um, true people who practice Wicca or witchcraft don't even believe in Satan. So this doesn't even actually conceptually make sense, uh, these thoughts of clergymen, right? A witch could make her enemy's wife sick, steal his cow's milk, and also, which is one of like part of it is like, do no, do no harm is literally a saying in witchcraft. Um, so they wouldn't be trying to make people sick. Um, if anything, the only thing that you do to people that you don't like is, you know, 
I mean, if you've seen it like in the craft, I guess is the best example, like binding someone or like making sure their energy is not on you, but to actually steal something or make someone sick or harm someone, that's not, I mean, like it is magic that is available, I suppose that you could dip into, but it's frowned upon um, by witches as a whole. Uh, a witch could make her enemy's wife sick, steal his cow's milk, harm his goods, crops or health or kill him demonologists explained and once the deal was done the witch was damned she would join satan's church an evil twin opposite of christianity its congregations would perform obscene rites at meetings called sabbaths a word echoing the name given to the christian holy day at these meetings to which they were sometimes thought to fly on animals or broomsticks uh, witches worshipped the devil and sought new recruits to give their souls to satan the devil demonologists decided was not just a tempter and facilitator of evil their new science concluded he had become the witch's god a worker of wonders served with murder and mayhem which just don't have a god they it's a nature and your dead ancestors uh they're either or inverted thinking god slash devil uh, devout slash heretical Christian slash slash witch prompted mass witch trials. After all, if witches were totally evil enemies of God and humanity, the only possible response was to put them on trial, convict and kill them. Hundreds of witches were tried by churches and states, executed, imprisoned, or exiled as enemies of God and humanity. Of course, that was demonological theory rather than reality. It was impossible to prove that magic actually caused illness and death. No physical evidence of satanic Sabbaths was found, and verbal accounts of them varied widely. So if we don't believe that the people accused of witchcraft really did kill their enemies with curses or worship at a satanic church, then how do we explain their accusation? Misogyny plays a crucial part here, underlying the accuser's fear, hatred, and discrimination. Most accused witches were poorer women, some with unusual beliefs about religion or an assertive manner that worried their neighbors. That is a hilarious sentence. An assertive manner that worried their neighbors. You're a witch. Oh, you're a woman with an opinion? Cool. Some were comparatively wealthy, but still attracted to their uh, their community's dislike. Some were older women, widows living alone. But many were younger women with or without children, some married, others not, some working, others begging. They were often women who their communities perceived had been hurt, bullied, jolted, refused charity or a job. Their neighbors sometimes heard them spitting out sharp words. Yeah, complaining. Any woman who speaks out about an injustice that she endured is a witch. Then something happened to a person who had offended the suspected witch. Their cow died. Their child had visions. Their ship sank. People began to think a witch had caused the harm. Perhaps in reality, the accused, the accused had attempted magic. They were often individuals without much power in their societies, and the idea that a disempowered person could use magic did offer hope, which was in actuality limited by gender economic status or differences of belief and opportunity but sometimes there was no compelling evidence that suspects had done anything magical at all either way when the accused people were arrested and dragged to the minister or magistrate it would not be unusual for them to confess to witchcraft or at least admit to a belief in magic an accused witch would have her own folk beliefs about witches and magic often differing from her interrogator's fears left to herself she was more likely to imagine performing 
uh, healing charms and curses, say she had interacted with ill-defined spirits rather than devils, and invent folkloric stories about bargains with fairies or ghosts instead of formal satanic worship. But under pressure, her story would likely come to align with her accusers to the extent that conviction was plausible. In some jurisdictions, uh, suspects were tortured. Torture using specially designed apparatus was legal across most of uh, much of Europe. A tortured person might confess anything. Mass uh, witch meetings, devil worship, orgies, grave robbing, baby killing, flying, cannibalism. The interrogator's own anxieties regarding what was evil, forbidden, or taboo would influence what they asked suspects and therefore what was confessed. Hmm, bias. And even in jurisdictions where torture was banned, a witchcraft suspect would be intimidated by the officials who questioned her, churchmen and magistrates, lords and kings. Normally, these men paid little attention to women like her, so she told them what they wanted to hear. She might be bullied, lied to, threatened, in some places sleep deprivation, not understood to be torture, was permitted. Under this assault, she might dredge from her memory some charms she had used, angry thoughts she'd had about traitor Peter, spiteful words she spat at farmer anna even if she had done nothing wrong and confessed nothing under interrogation the accused person would be sent to the court that judged suspected witches in her locality medieval and reformation europe was full of jurisdictional confusion where catholicism was the official faith broadly across middle southern and eastern europe church officials known as inquisitors often led witch trials although bishops parliaments secular rulers and local magistrates also had their own jurisdictions in protestant areas largely the north and west state authorities replaced religion religious courts increasingly as demonology moved to america a witch trial might be prompted by ordinary people, low-level officiants, or amateur investigators. Oh, it's like TikTok. In state courts, there was no inquisitor. Instead, multiple accusers would give evidence to a panel of judges or jury of citizens who would decide the verdict. Uh, literally a nightmare. Going to going to trial in front of uh, a, a group of your peers is literally what I consider to be a nightmare. At the trial, the suspected witch might be exonerated and freed, but she might be sentenced to penance, imprisonment, exile, or death by hanging or burning. It depended on the laws of her church or state whether she was shamed, banished, or killed as an enemy of her people. Because that, by the late 15th century, was the answer to the question, what is a witch? Which were the representation of everything evil they were the enemy um i just wanted to share that just because i think like out of all the um uh historical happenings that we are familiar with in modern times uh which trials are the ones that i come back to time and time again not only because i am specifically interested in witchcraft but i just think um it is so uh applicable to things that happen over and over and over again in society uh, and politics. So that was a little piece that I wanted to share with you. Then you, I'm sure you heard this um, as far as our update from the crisis in the Middle East, uh, that three uh, American soldiers were killed this week. Of course, America loves to be, you know, well, I guess we should be concerned when it's our people primarily, but you know, also should be concerned where just ten, thousands of people are dying, whether or not they're American. People are people. Um, so this, I think, is being live updated, but it's from the New York Times. Widening Mideast crisis. Officials propose a six-week pause in war 
and hostage prisoner swap. Um, all right, let me look at what's happening here. This is basically what you need to know. The United States, Israel, Egypt, and Qatar sketched out a bare bones framework for the proposed arrangement uh, during weekend talks in Paris. The officials said officials propose to Hamas a six week pause and hostage prisoner swap. Officials say that a mix up preceded a deadly drone drone strike in Jordan that killed three uh, three U.S. service members. Uh, The Pentagon names the three soldiers killed in Jordan. The water went everywhere. Rain and cold adds to the Gazans' misery. The embattled U.N. agency for Palestinians has long shared its staff rosters with Israel. Iran has cultivated a web of proxy forces in Iraq and Syria. And what are U.S. forces doing in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan? Uh, I'll just write a couple of these pieces um, from that. I think, okay, so this proposed Hamas uh, six-week pause and hostage prisoner swap, uh, representatives from four nations have agreed to have Qatar present a nascent framework to Hamas that proposes a six-week pause in the war in Gaza for Hamas to exchange some hostages for Palestinian prisoners held by Israel, officials say. The talks are at an early stage and many details would need to be worked out if Hamas agrees to start building on the framework. They said Qatar is presenting the proposal to the political leaders of Hamas, who would convey it to the group's military leaders, who would then send a response. That process could take days or even longer because the military leaders are in hiding in tunnels deep beneath Gaza. In the proposed framework, Hamas would release elderly hostages, women and children, if they are still being held and are alive. Over the pause period of six weeks, said the officials who agreed to speak on the condition of anonymity to describe sensitive diplomacy. That would be the first of three potential phases of swaps. During a seven-day pause in November, many people in those categories were among more than 100 hostages released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, but some remain in the hands of Hamas or other militant groups in Gaza. Some Israeli officials say the number of hostages who would qualify for the first release is 30 to 35, but that is an estimate, and the negotiators do not know the actual number. It is unclear if female soldiers would be included in hostages released in the tranche being discussed. That could be worked out in negotiations of details if the talks reach that stage. Hamas and other men from Gaza took about 240 people hostage in the terrorist attacks in southern Israel on October 7th, which also resulted in about 1,200 deaths. Israeli officials said. The retaliatory Israeli military campaign with robust weapons support from the United States has killed about 25,000 people in Gaza, according to health ministry officials there. Since the November swap, talks over a hostage release had stalled. Hamas has tried to steer any diplomacy uh, towards discussion of a permanent ceasefire, but Israeli leaders have balked at that. A meeting in Paris was intended to get negotiations going again. The terms of the broad framework were sketched out on Sunday in Paris by representatives of the United States, Israel, Qatar, and Egypt. William J. Burns, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, was there, as were the heads of Israel's intelligence service, the Mossad and internal security agency, Shin Bet. One official said Mr. Burns was very helpful in getting the Israeli representatives to agree to some of the suggestions. The Israeli officials were expected to speak to leaders in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv about the framework after returning there from Paris. 
Paris. The prime minister and foreign minister of Qatar, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman bin Jassim Al Thani, uh, flew from the meeting in Paris to Washington, where he met with Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken on Monday morning. Mr. Blinken declined to give details of the framework at a news conference in the afternoon, saying the less said, the better. But he said that the proposal now on the table is a compelling one and that there is some real hope going forward. And that's not a word that we hear a lot when we talk about the Middle East hope. Um, He added that the countries in talks in the talks were in alignment on the initial framework to be presented to Hamas. But he said, Hamas will have to make its own decisions. Uh, They always do. Sheikh Mohammed said at a public talk at the Atlantic Council after his meeting with Mr. Blinken that we are in a much better place than we were a few weeks ago. Our main role as mediator is trying our best to get a negotiated solution where it can bring the hostages safely back to their homes, yet also stopping the bombing, he added. If the first proposed hostage for prisoners swap successfully takes place during a six-week pause in the war... Then two other phases with similar terms could be enacted after the details are worked out, said the officials briefed on the talks. Eventually, they said Hamas might have uh, hand over male soldiers and corpses of people who died in captivity. Some officials from the countries involved in the talks said they hoped the phases would lead to a permanent ceasefire. This was the hope among Qatari officials during the November pause, but that fell apart at the end as fighting restarted and negotiators were unable to extend it. The New York Times reported on Saturday that American officials are trying to push forward on three major sets of negotiations to bring about a political resolution to the war. The first, and the one that U.S. officials consider most urgent, is on the hostages and a pause that might lead to a permanent uh, a permanent ceasefire. Because yes, like my question, and there's like a couple paragraphs left, but my question uh, regarding this, I guess, of now, and I don't know the answer. I'm just, it's just something that comes to mind, you know, is yeah, it's yeah, uh, killing 12, get, having 1200 of your people uh, slain and then in retaliation, killing 25,000 people. No, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? That's, it, it's, it's really, really crazy. That being said though, right? If Hamas really cares about its people, which I know some people have really polarizing views on, but they were, again, as a reminder, they were elected initially. So if Hamas gives a shit about its people, you know, or, you know, Palestinians at all, is it fair to say like that Israel would stop attacking them if they just released the remainder of those Israeli hostages? Is that something they can agree on? Because if so, why not just release these hostages? Like, I don't... I don't know what they think the solution here is going to be, but certainly it's not worth holding those hostages and to have, you know, the continued death of tens of thousands of your people. Right. I mean, am I missing something here? Mike, are you even listening? No, sorry. I was, uh, I was talking to Mike. I just walked in the booth. My bad. No, I was just talking about how, uh, you know, the continued, uh, slaying of the Palestinian people, like they're at uh, 25,000 people right now. Um, the death toll for Israel remains around 1,200. Uh, and do you think it's true that if Hamas released the remainder of the Israeli hostages, that uh, Israel would uh, cease fire? Or do you think that's not true? Like, would they not? It's tough to say because it really does feel like Israel is as. I feel like Israel's drawn the line in the sand. They're like, you know, they're going to keep moving the goalposts. So once the hostages are released, fine, but we still have these tunnels to deal with. 
Right, because it's, I mean, it, it's, you know, it seems like when you use the word genocide, that that is what they're trying to do, just absolutely eliminate the Palestinian um, people in Gaza as a whole. I mean, that that was their stated goal after the October 7th. But did they use the word genocide? No. Right, exactly. Okay, I did, did. But what, what, I want to see what, if what, the Third what, Reich used that word. No, they, but they used the word extermination. They did. Like, that's like the language. To me, extermination and um, genocide are actually pretty inter- interchangeable. Ex- extermination almost sounds worse, to be honest. Um, so, I mean, did they use the word extermination? Did they? Wait, wait. So, Israel. So, like, Netanyahu. Extermination. I mean, I knew. I know they used pretty harsh language. Uh, I can't tell. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm seeing somebody's using it as a clickbait headline. I'm gonna see yeah. if I can find the actual quote though. Yeah, because I don't. I mean, I don't see that. I mean, I mean, I, I to me, their stated goal was like we're gonna go hard, you know. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I don't. I want to see where they stated that their goal was to exterminate uh, the the entirety of the Palestinian people. I mean, that's just a crazy thing to say. Okay, the second. Um, so again, uh, we we told the the first and the one that U.S. officials consider most urgent is on the hostages and a pause that might lead to a permanent ceasefire. The second is an overhauling is on overhauling the leadership of the Palestinian Authority, the semi-autonomous body that administers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank. And the third is on trying to get Israel to commit to a concrete pathway to a Palestinian state in exchange for Saudi Arabia agreeing to formal diplomatic ties with Israel. For months before the October 7th attacks, the Biden administration had been talking to Saudi officials about offering them U.S. security guarantees if they agreed to normalize ties with Israel. and then um, regarding the drone strike, it just, yeah, it just, so there was uh, three dead soldiers, all black men, which I find that troublesome. Um, air defenses failed to stop an attack on a U.S. military outpost in Jordan on Sunday that killed three Amer- American soldiers, at least in part because the hostile drone approached its target at the same time an American drone was returning to the base, two U.S. officials said on Monday. The enemy drone was mistaken for an American surveillance drone returning to the remote resupply base, and air defenses were not immediately engaged, according to the officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss preliminary findings of a major cause of the episode. Two other drones that attacked other locations nearby in southeast Syria were shot down, they added. The Wall Street Journal earlier reported the drone mix-up now at the heart of an investigation by the military's central command into the deadly attack that has drawn vows of retaliation from President Biden raised doubts about American military defenses in the Middle East and begged anew questions about the administration's efforts to deter attacks by Iran 
uh, backed militias against merchant vessels, warships, and military bases in the region. The attack on Sunday killed three U.S. Army Reserve soldiers, the first known American military fatalities from hostile fire in the turmoil spilling over from Israel's war with Hamas. The Pentagon on Monday raised the injured toll to at least 40, with a warning that the list would probably grow as additional troops came forward with symptoms of brain trauma from the blast. Biden administration officials blamed a drone launched by an Iran-backed militia from Iraq, and suspicions at the Pentagon immediately fell on Kataib Hezbollah, an Iran-affiliated group in Iraq. It has the footprints of Kataib Hezbollah, Sabrina Singh, a Pentagon spokeswoman told reporters, noting that intelligence analysts were still assessing the strike. The Pentagon on Monday identified the dead soldiers as a Sergeant uh, William Jerome Rivers, 46, of Carleton, Georgia, uh, Special Kennedy Laydon Sanders, 24, of Waycross, Georgia, and Special Brianna Alexandria Moffitt, uh, 23 of Savannah, Georgia. So, oh my God, I'm so, so sorry. I, I, These people all had uh, hats on and I thought that was a man, not a woman. A- apologies. Uh, the three were assigned to the 718th, but they are all, they are all uh, people of color, um, which... Mm, yeah, specifically black. I don't. It's fucked up. I don't like that. Uh, the three were assigned to the 718th Engineer Company, 926th Engineer Battalion, 926th Engineer Brigade, and Army Reserve Unit based in Fort Moore, Georgia. The drone strike on the outpost in northeast Jordan near its borders with Syria and Iraq called T- Tower 22 escalated hostilities in the region that have been mounting since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel and the subsequent subsequent war in Gaza. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that it is worse for a, a black life to be la- lost than a white life. What I mean, it just like for this to be the first three deaths, uh, American deaths, it it just makes me like a little suspicious. Like, are we placing our uh, black soldiers or people of color soldiers in more dangerous situations? Again, no proof here. I just it just feels a little like. I don't really, I don't, no, I don't trust America to not do something like that. Uh, a military investigation is underway to determine exactly what went wrong. Pentagon officials said the base's air defenses were functioning properly early Sunday. Weather was not a factor. One theory military officials are examining is the militants studied the patterns of U.S. drone flights and deliberately positioned their attack drone near the returning American drone to make it harder to spot. Militia planners could have used Google Earth images of the base to guide the explosive-laden drone, uh, explosives-laden drone to the center of a mass target like the living uh, quarters. Mr. Biden has vowed to retaliate, and he met for a second straight day on Monday with his senior national security aides to discuss possible targets in Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Senior U.S. officials said attacking Iran directly was less likely, though the U.S. military has drawn up plans to strike Iranian military advisors and trainers in Iraq and Syria in the event that U.S. troops were killed by uh, Iran-backed militias in the Middle East. Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III, on his first day back to work, at the Pentagon since his surgery last month for prostate cancer, condemned the attacks and vowed retribution. 
it's always good to come back from fighting cancer and then vow retribution. Let me start with my outrage and sorrow for the deaths of these three brave U.S. troops in Jordan and for the other troops who were wounded, Mr. Austin said, before meeting with NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. The president and I will not tolerate attacks on U.S. forces, and we will take all necessary actions to defend the U.S. and our troops. The drone strike in Jordan underscored that uh, the Iran-backed militias, whether in Iran or Syria or the Houthis in Yemen, remained capable of inflicting serious consequences on American troops despite the U.S. military's effort to weaken them and avoid tumbling into a wider conflict, possibly with Iran itself. Uh, American troops in Iraq and Syria and now Jordan have come under attack at least 165 times since October, 66 times in Iraq, 98 times in Syria, and Sunday's attack in Jordan, the Pentagon said on Monday. Day. More than 80 service members had suffered injuries, including brain trauma, before the latest salvo. We know that Iran supports these groups, John F. Kirby, a National Security Council spokesman, said on Monday. We know they resource them. We know they train them. We know that they're certainly not discouraging these attacks. But Mr. Kirby added, the degree to which they all order and direct is something that intelligence analysts will look at. Pressed repeatedly at briefings with reporters on Monday about when and how the United States would respond, Mr. Kirby and Ms. Singh declined to comment on specific options. They emphasized that the administration was seeking to avert a wider war in the region, even as they blamed the attack for escalating tensions. We're not looking for a war with Iran, Mr. Kirby said, but the attacks have to stop. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken said on Monday that he would not telegraph any potential U.S. response, but that such action could be multi-leveled, come in stages, and be sustained over time. Mr. Blinken added, this is an incredibly volatile time in the Middle East. Oh, you don't say. What a, what a great statement. I would argue that we have not seen a situation as dangerous as the one we're facing now across the region since at least 1973 and arguably even before that. For its part, Iran on Monday decided uh, denied any link to the attack and blamed Washington for igniting tensions in the region. About 350 Army and Air Force personnel are deployed to the Tower 22 border outpost. It serves as a logistics and resupply hub for the Al-Tanf garrison nearby in southeastern Syria, where American troops work with local Syrian partners to fight remnants of the Islamic State. The one-way attack drone hit near the outpost's living quarters, causing injuries that ranged from minor cuts to brain trauma, a U.S. military official said. Eight U.S. service members were flown to Iraq for medical care, and three of those were expe expected to be flown to Germany for even more advanced treatment, Ms. Singh said. The soldiers and airmen were living in a containerized housing were living in containerized housing units, Ms. Singh said. Essentially aluminum boxes a little bigger than a commercial shipping container. They have linoleum floors and cots or beds inside and can be easily transported on trucks. What was different about this attack is where it landed, Ms. Singh said. It was pretty early in the morning, so people were actually in their beds when the drone impacted. Um, so that is your Middle East update for the week. Um, I do want to quickly go over... <clears throat> This NYU professor uh, that we've heard about who was telling students uh, Hamas baby killings uh, not true. 
uh, and he, who has been since suspended. So much going on in colleges. This is from the New York Post. Um, they also did a larger par- piece on it in the free press, but I just don't think time-wise we have enough time for that. But if you want to um, look at that, uh, it's called, it's by Francesca Block. It's called NYU Professor Tells Students of Hamas Atrocities We Know It's Not True. Um, I'm sure you've seen this video circulating. It was pretty widely circulated. I just wanted to get a little more information before I covered it on the show. Um, an NYU adjunct professor and firebrand pro-Palestinian activist told a group of students at a recent teach-in that allegations that Hamas beheaded Israeli babies were not true and denounced New York City as a Zion, uh, as Zionist, according to a video from the event. And what I'll say to this is, again, we went over that on this show. There actually is not concrete proof that Hamas beheaded Israeli babies. Um, another thing that he was saying was not true was that Hamas raped uh, uh, w- women who they took as hostages. That has been proven. And again, this is a, you literally can just Google, did Hamas behead babies? And the articles are basically it all comes up as like, we're not sure. We're not sure. That can't, that, that, those claims, um, have not been proven true or false. Um, so for him to say it's not true, to me, that's a little bit too sure on the not true end. I think you can say these are unsubstantiated claims. I think that would be fair to say that because, again, that's something that was widely circulating uh, among uh you know, pro-Israel people online. And I looked into that and I just, there was not a way to uh, prove those true. But the uh, the raping of, of women by Hamas, that is, has been, been proven, been claimed, that's across the board, that's a, that's a yes. So that's, that did happen. And to say that New York is Zionist is uh, really interesting with what I've seen going on lately. I mean, there is a you know a ton of free Gaza uh, graffiti and work around the city, and I had a really interesting experience at a comedy show this weekend. I'm not going to say the name of the venue. Actually, there were two interesting experiences. One, I was at a club and my friend was like shaking because she is Jewish, and she mentioned in her set last week that she was Jewish and it was not, she wasn't doing material about Palestine and Israel. Um, and an audience member stood up, um, and started heckling her and saying that it was like disgusting that she was Jewish as if that's something that you can even change. Uh, again, uh, Judaism is an ethnicity as well as religion. It is not chosen. Um, even though we are the chosen people, it is not chosen. You're either have Jewish blood or you don't. And, uh, I was at a show with her and she she was so scared because that guy had not been banned from the club and he was back again and she had to perform in front of him again. So, um, you know, places are certainly kind of allowing um, anti-Semitic things to happen as if that is okay, as if Jews can handle it. And then I was at another show that same night and a Jewish comedian, I, I don't remember the full setup of his joke, but he was basically kind of asking the audience he had some premise about Jewish cemeteries and Jewish cemeteries do work differently than Christian cemeteries. Uh, you know, to me, the the standout thing is that like you can't get buried in a Jewish cemetery if you have a tattoo and you can't. And instead of placing flowers on graves, um, we place rocks on graves. Right. Because uh, flowers die and rocks don't. Um, but anyway, um, and so he was saying something about like, do you know why you can't uh, like what you need to get buried in a Jewish cemetery or something? And a crowd member yells out what you need to get buried in a Jewish cemetery is, quote, the mark of the beast. And everyone laughs. 
and no one stopped it. And I thought it was horrific. Mike, I'll, I will fire you from the show on air. Um, Mike is doing a little uh, hand pump in the, in the thing. Um, but it was I just that I nailed that guy's punchline because he's a hack. Um, no, 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 no. It wasn't. The, it was a heckle. The bark of no. the beast was from a heckler. I know. But the Jewish comedian wasn't going to say that. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. No, what you're I meant talking the, about. Cra- the guy who was heckling is a hack. Yeah, of course he's a hack. But everyone laughed, and I found that really, really disturbing. That, um, yeah, and I'm like, do they not? Do they not know what the mark of the beast? I mean, the mark of the beast means, you know, in biblical terms, um, that you are evil, that you are pure, pure evil. So the whole audience in a group, and this was in Tribeca, were in unison laughing that Jews are evil, and this is something that now as a society we all understand. So when I talk about widespread anti-Semitism, this is what I'm talking about again. And again, I also agree completely disgusting um, th- what is happening to the people of Palestine. Uh, but to say that New York City is a Zionist space is just is just inaccurate. Um, if anything, I would say it's you know, in the areas that I hang out um, in, at least, and I again, I, I'm I'm making I'm making pretty r- big rounds around the city because I am a comedian. So I'm going to like three to four boroughs uh, in a weekend. Like I'm I'm going a lot more places than the average New Yorker is going because of my uh, job. Uh, Amin Hossein, 48, led a foul-mouthed discussion about the war in Israel at the new school organized by the radical uh, group Students uh, for Pal- uh, for Justice in Palestine on December 5th, during which he defended the Palestinians' right to fight for their liberation and played down claims of Hamas atrocities. And I mean, of course they have the right to fl- f- uh, fight for their liberation. Uh, they're trying to say, oh my God, you support rapists and people that behead babies, both of which, whatever, we know it's not true. I mean, half of it's true, at least. Hussein says in a two-minute clip taken uh, from the live stream of the event that was first obtained by the free press. The professor's claims sparked outrage in the local and international Jewish community regarding the growing incidents of anti-Semitism in NYU and U.S. uh, US college campuses. I'm confused because the new school... Oh, I, oh, that's the that's the you know because that's technically a different college, but it is associated with NYU. Okay, uh, Roz Rothstein, co-founder and CEO of Stand With Us, an international nonpartisan education group that supports Israel and fights anti-Semitism, said Hussein's comments were anti-Jewish and condemned any school that would hire um, him. I don't know that saying those things were untrue is necessarily anti-Jewish. I would say it's certainly like. Uh, misinformation, but there's misinformation all around, you know? There is anti-Semitism. I'm just not sure that this is it. That specific line is it, right? Shame on this professor for collaborating with the internationally recognized terrorist group Hamas by denying the documented rapes, beheadings, kidnappings, and murders of over 1,400 human beings, Rothstein said in a statement to the Post. He is harming civil society by promoting lies and justifying barbaric attacks against the Jewish people and by being proud of being called an anti-Semite, which he is. It is deeply concerning and unfortunate that any academic institution would have such dangerous staff serving as role models, he added. Well, I mean, I hope your professor isn't necessarily your role model. Uh, Eitan Guttenmacher, 21, a Jewish student at NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where Hussein taught, said he was horrified by the professor's statements, but not surprised. Guttenmacher, leader of the new Zionist Congress nonprofit group, said Hussein has been notorious at the Gallatin School for his anti-Semitic views, adding that the Jewish students know not to take any of his classes. He's proud 
of being called an anti-Semite. And it's extremely concerning to see that in a seemingly progressive liberal arts college, Guttenmacher said. But again, if you're going along with like uh, progressive liberals, they are mostly Palestine over Israel, like true, true progressive people. And that's why I would argue that um, New York City as uh, mostly progressive is not Zionist. It is rather uh, f- pro-free Palestine. Um, in the recording, Hussein, a part-time faculty member of NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study, is seen seated behind a desk wearing um, a traditional Arabic kefia uh, headdress and facing his audience. We live in a Zionist society or city, Hussein uh, proclaims, let's be fucking real. These people can come up and say, because of Kefia, uh, you should go back to your country. One of the students chimes in, we're trying. Hussein decries the purported discrimination against Muslims as bullshit before mocking a petition started by an NYU alum last year calling for his firing. I have a petition going around, right, because I'm anti-Semitic. I won the honors of anti-Semitic multiple times, by the way, the NYU staffer says. So, yeah, he is leaning in. But I mean, plenty of people lean into being called that. Uh, Let's see. Um. Hussein uh, goes on to say that his profile on the website Canary Mission, which documents professors, student activists, and organizations that promote hatred of the U.S., Israel, and Jews on college campuses, is one of the best biographies I have. Okay, so this is where it gets into the thing. Again, I I feel like they were sharing the wrong um, headlines about this guy because I'm like saying that. I guess that's the the part that they thought would evoke the most um, passion in people, Um, him saying that it was not true that Israeli babies were beheaded beheaded and saying it was not true that Israeli women were raped. Um, It's endless. The citations are better than I could ever imagine, he quips, drawing laughter from his listeners, and everything they cite is true. Hussein's pages-long entry on Canary Mission's portal states that he has organized multiple violent New York City disruptions, promoted hatred of America and the police and incited hatred against pro-Israel supporters with Within Our Lifetime, an anti-Israel activist group in New York. The Educators Online dossier further states that Hussein has claimed to have participated in a series of violent protests and riots staged by Palestinians between the late 1980s and early 1990s, known as the first in uh, Tifada, and personally visited a leader of the terror group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Okay. Um, He has also expressed support for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine terror group. Again, terror, I would use that lightly because it's in the eye of the beholder. Terrorist is in the eye of the beholder. And glorified its leaders, promoted other terrorists, and spread hatred of Israel, the watchdog group's introduction reads. Hussein is the founding member of the radical activist group Decolonize This Place, which praised the Palestinian resistance as heroic a day after the deadly October 7th attack by Hamas and previously made headlines by causing disruptions in the New York City subway system. Causing the uh, During the teach-in at the New School, Hussein openly defended the various factions involved in what he called the Palestinian liberation struggle. These groups are fighting for the liberation of their people and the land. That's a right. You do it, he says in the video. If you don't like Hamas, right? Free the land and the people. The Post reached out to Hussein on Thursday seeking comment on the inflammatory content of his teaching. The new school said in a statement that Hussein had not been affiliated with the institution since 2019, 
but he has been previously invited to speak on campus by the university's Students for Justice in Palestine group. The new school chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine is entitled to use university space, as are all new school student organizations, for educational activities and has the right to invite speakers representing various points of view to the university, a spokesperson for the school said. And I, yeah, I, that's my stance too. There were, even if they are seemingly anti-Semitic, as long as he is not actually, you know, trying to tell people to get together and hurt Jews, um, which on the fence with this guy, the remarks made by Hussein at these events are outrageous and offensive. Anti-Semitism has no place on our campus or anywhere else, the school added. Um, but the thing is, I, I mean, it needs anti-Semitism needs to spe- we need to specifically talk about what what anti-Semitism is. I think saying to free Palestine, Palestine to me is not inherently uh, anti-Semitic um, at all. Right. So anti-Semitism is saying because you're a Jew, you're bad. <laughs> like, you know, or some take on that. The new school added uh, that Hussein was invited to speak at the event by the student group. The new school, SJP, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. NYU spokesperson John Beckman told The Post that Hussein is no longer teaching at the school, but did not specify if he was fired or when the university made its decision. To be clear, Mr. Hussein has been suspended uh, and is not uh, currently uh, teaching at NYU. Um, then the rest is just kind of things about Hussein and how they're so horrified and a bunch of useless quotes that mean absolutely garbage and nothing. So that is that. And then the last story of the day is our main story. Um, I think it's, a, um, it was important to cover this because it is from, it is about, uh, Oklahoma death row. And I was inspired by a piece in the free press, but I think, um, uh, CNN kind of did a nice job of really summarizing it, whereas the free pe- you know the free press is a lot of their opinion pieces, but then they they go on long tangents, right? So if you want to read the companion piece to that, um, it's called "Can This Death Row Inmate Bring Down the Death Penalty Itself?" That's by Rupa Subramanya um, at the FP.com. But I am just going to uh, roll it up with a singular article. Uh, what we know, because this isn't so much like a repub- like a liberal uh, conservative argument. I guess, you know, conservatives do lean a little bit more death penalty. But to me, that's it, it's more just like about uh, is is the death penalty humane and what we're still doing as a society. So this is from CNN.com. What we know about the case of death row inmate Richard Goss- Glossip, who says he's innocent and the Supreme Court. Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop will finally get the chance to argue for a new trial before the U.S. Supreme Court after insisting for almost three decades he is innocent of the murder for which he was sentenced to die. The high court this week agreed to take up the inmate's extraordinary appeal, which is backed even by Oklahoma's attorney general, a Republican whose support rests on evidence that undermines the credibility of the state's star witness, the man who killed the victim, and suggests prosecutorial misconduct marred the case. Celebrities, including Kim Kardashian, have also been among his supporters. Through it all, Glossop has endured nine execution dates with, can you imagine just having you and your family and stuff go through this, with each successive one seeming to raise more questions about the fair administration of the death penalty in Oklahoma and beyond. 
Glossop was very excited that the court takes his case very seriously and recognizes the importance of this case and has agreed to hear the case. His attorney, Don Knight, told CNN's Jake Tapper of his client's reaction to the news. We're looking forward to the next phase. Glossop's attorneys have asked the justices to address several questions, including whether the prosecution's suppression of evidence and its failure to correct false testimony violated Glossop's right to due process. Additionally, they have asked whether his conviction should be reversed when it is so infected with errors that the state no longer seeks to defend it. Here's what we know about Glossop's case. He was convicted of the murder of Barry Van Treese, Glossop's case dates to January 7th, 1997, when Barry Van Treese, a 54-year-old husband and father of seven, was beaten to death at the Oklahoma City motel he owned by a 19-year-old named Justin Sneed, court record state. Sneed admitted to killing Van Treese, but at trial, prosecutors with the Oklahoma District Attorney's Office presented the killing as a murder-for-hire plot orchestrated by Glossop, then the motel's 35-year-old manager, whose criminal record, per his attorneys, consisted of a single traffic ticket. In exchange for a guilty plea and his testimony against Glossop, Sneed got a life sentence to avoid the death penalty. Glossop was arrested two days after Van Treese's killing and initially charged with accessory to murder. The charge was later upgraded to first-degree murder court records show, which is, I think, feel mind-blowing when you didn't actually do the killing yourself physically to get first-degree murder. Like, wow. I mean, obviously, it was premeditated, et cetera. But uh, Glossop was convicted and sentenced to death in 1998, but that initial outcome was overturned on appeal due to ineffective counsel. He was retried again in 2004, and he was again convicted and, convicted and sentenced to die. Two, investigations cause cast uncertainty on his guilt. Glossop has always maintained his innocence, saying he was not involved in Van Treese's murder. And while two independent uh, reviews in recent years stopped short of declaring him innocent, they raised significant doubts about his purported guilt and the way prosecutors secured his conviction. Their first review was done at the request of Oklahoma legislators by the law firm Reed Smith, which released its findings in a 343-page report in June 2022. Most uh, months of pro bono inquiry revealed the state's intentional destruction of evidence before uh, Glossop's second trial, the firm said, namely a box containing financial records. Uh, Reed Smith's report said were needed to disprove prosecutors theory that Glossop was motivated to kill Van Treese because he was embezzling money from the motel. Prosecutors uh, were aware of the destruction of evidence, Reed Smith's report said, describing it as a complete breakdown in our criminal justice system. Additionally, Sneed's testimony, the state's sole evidence of Glossop's involvement, was tainted. Reed Smith concluded, Sneed only implicated Glossop after detectives mentioned the latter's name six times during Sneed's interrogation, offering a lifeline to a man facing a first-degree murder charge, the law firm's report said. A supplement to Reed Smith's report later included Sneed's statements indicating he wanted to recant his testimony, including a 2007 letter in which Sneed wrote to his attorney, there are a lot of things right now that are eating at me, and I think you know uh, we're uh, sick. I'm going to I'm going. It was a mistake. Uh, the second review was undertaken by GOP Oklahoma Attorney General uh, Gentner Drummond. After he took office in January 2023, he commissioned an independent counsel who ultimately decided a motion to vacate Glossop's conviction and a new trial were appropriate. 
That decision was based on findings, including that prosecutors has withheld evidence from Glossop and his attorneys, a so-called Brady violation. Upon getting access to those files last January, Glossop's attorneys say they found evidence. Sneed told prosecutors he was under the care of a jail psychiatrist who had diagnosed him with bipolar disorder and prescribed him lithium. The doctor also believes Sneed's methamphetamine use could have made him potentially violent. But at Glossop's second trial, under questioning by prosecutors, Sneed said he had never seen a psychiatrist and suggested the lithium was prescribed after he asked for Sudafed to treat a cold. Court records show the state did not contradict him. Glossop has a deep bench of supporters. Glossop has gained many allies in the intervening years, including celebrities like Kardashian and a bipartisan group of Oklahoma state legislatures, the loudest of whom are Republicans who support the death penalty, but question its staying power if Glossop is executed, which I think it really speaks volumes about this case. Still, Glossop has remained on death row, each apparent moment of vindication seemingly followed by a setback that ensures his continued imprisonment and one execution date after another, the most recent of which was May 18th. Based on the independent counsel's findings, the attorney general filed a motion in early April with the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals to vacate Glossop's conviction, saying in a statement he cannot stand behind the murder conviction and death sentence of Richard Glossop. This is not to say I believe he is innocent, Drummond said. However, it is critical that Oklahomans have absolute faith that the death penalty is administered fairly and with certainty. Considering everything I know about this case, I do not believe that justice is served by executing a man based on the testimony of a compromised witness. The backing of the state's chief law enforcement officer was a significant boon for Glossop, but two weeks later, the appeals court denied Glossop's appeal in a five to zero vote less than a month before Glossop's next scheduled execution. Glossop pleaded his case for clemency days later before the state's pardons and parole board where Drummond, in another unusual step, testified on Glossop's behalf. Again, he lost. The board voted two to two with run recusal, resulting in a denial of recommendation of clemency and again setting the stage for his execution. That same day, Glossop's attorneys petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay of execution and to hear his case. The state indicated its own filing uh, in, in its own filing, its support of Glossop's request. Then on May 5th, the Supreme Court issued a stay while the justices considered whether to review his case. They ultimately agreed this week, setting the stage for the Glossop, uh, Glossop's attorney to argue his case later this year. Uh, it should be noted that uh, Van Treese's family rejects Glossop's innocence claims and believes his execution should move ahead. At last year's parole board hearing, the victim's family stood alone in testifying against clemency, pleading for justice to be done after so many years. In that time, the state of Oklahoma has had four governors, five attorneys general, seven directors of the Department of Corrections, said Van Treese's son, Derek Van Treese. After numerous appeals and reviews, the case has been pushed from the court of the law to the court of public opinion, he said. Enough is enough. Van Treese said, the time is now. I urge you, I beg you to allow justice to be finally served through the word of law and the will of the people by denying clemency. I just think when there's this much bullshit going on in a case to move forward, the death penalty is truly uh, a mindfuck. And I mean, you can see that I am not alone in this as someone vehemently against the death penalty. Republicans who vehemently support the death penalty are even saying like, if you kill this guy, it's actually bad for people who want um, to uh, maintain having the death penalty in general. Again, those are our topics for today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have something of interest, please send it to me at without a country podcast at gmail.com. 
Um, and uh, make sure to check out all the shows I mentioned at the top of the show. Follow us on Instagram, Without a Country Podcast. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Without a Country, uh, even if that is not where you primarily uh, ingest the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Con- uh, continue having conversations like this at home. Uh, don't stop being friends with people because they have a different opinion than you. Uh, and don't make a critical, you know, it's not critical thinking if you just do what Taylor Swift tells you to do. But I also don't think that is a real conspiracy um, that is happening. So anyway, thank you so much. Look for Shelly Miscavige. Have a great week. This has been Without a Country. Bye. Bye.